the overture. Dan and Dave almost looked like twins, but they weren't. They were half-brothers, both in the same class in second grade and only three months apart, born to two different moms who hated each other, but not as much as they hated Dan and Dave's dad, who got the boys every other weekend and had them both at the same time. So it was kind of like a sleepover for the boys since their moms didn't let them visit each other. The whole arrangement seemed fascinating and exotic to the rest of us in Dan and Dave's class, and we asked them to re-explain the story over and over again. You didn't get the story from them unless they were in the right mood, though. Dan and Dave were notoriously mean. Mean in the kind of way that makes other grade school kids be extra cautiously nice to you all the time, in hopes of avoiding being on the receiving end of some random mean phrase or sudden hurled spitball or pink eraser. Hold your tongue with your fingers and say ship, they'd say cornering you, or look down your shirt and spell attic. And of course you had to, and they'd laugh and laugh with evil. Green beans equal boogers, they would proclaim under the teacher's radar to everyone in the lunch line. And chocolate pudding equals puke. No, it equals poop. Anyone who eats green beans or chocolate pudding is eating boogers and poop. And everyone would go through the lunch line and sit down, and there'd be a partition of green beans and a partition of chocolate pudding on every tray. And what could you do? You couldn't eat it. Because then you'd be announcing that you ate boogers and poop. Since when the hell the kids not like chocolate pudding, the lunch line monitors must have thought, as the garbage cans filled up with it, dumped tray after dumped tray. The most you could hope for was that Dan and Dave would assign puke or farts or butt hairs to some food you didn't like and weren't planning on eating anyway. One of the truly scary things about Dan and Dave was that when they spent the weekend together with their dad, sometime over the course of the weekend, they would decide on a color and then the following Monday at school, they would together beat up anyone wearing a shirt of that color. Two days out of the month, the stretch of time between the first bell and the first recess was filled with sweaty palms and humming nerves as you hoped you wouldn't look over and see both Dan and Dave looking right at you, letting you know that wearing that green shirt instead of the blue one had been a big mistake. They generally didn't beat up girls, but they would give them a good sock in the arm, except for the huge crybabies who were sure to run straight to the teacher immediately. But those people's lives were hard enough anyway. The virtue of not being a tattletale could be measured in number of bruises you had on your tricep. Music class was one day a week, and the best music classes were when the traveling music teacher brought in a film strip, and we didn't have to sing or clap time or play an instrument out of the big cardboard box of instruments, we could just sit and watch. You couldn't doze off during the film strips, though, because at the end of each frame, a piercing beep would sound to let the teacher know it was time to turn the dial on the projector to the next frame. And so the wood nymphs of Greek mythology danced in the moonlight and played the reeds of many different lengths bound together. This came to be known as the pan flute, perhaps the beginning of our wind instruments, the back of the projector glowed with two circle beams of light, with hot air rushing out and dust dancing around. This particular day, the film strip was all about William Tell, inspiration of the William Tell Overture, better known to most as the Lone Ranger song, and the punchline of the knee-slapping corker, where does the Lone Ranger take his garbage, to the dump, to the dump, to the dump, dump, dump. The story of William Tell is this. It was long ago Switzerland. 
you could tell in the film strip it was Switzerland because of all the cartoon Alps and mountain goats and people in braids and peasant blouses and funny hats and the Swiss chalets. The evil Swiss leader was named Hermann Gessler, and he was also a dead ringer for Burgermeister Meisterburger. Gessler took his hat and put it on a pole in the middle of the village. Then he put soldiers all around it, and every person in the land had to bow before the hat when they walked past it, or the soldiers would grab them. You would think that the people would have learned to just avoid that area, but I guess they could not. So one day, William Tell and his son went walking by, and they didn't bow to the hat. William Tell was drawn, sort of like Paul Bunyan, but in a Swiss outfit. The guards grabbed the Tells and took them before Gessler. For not bowing to the hat, said Gessler, you have a choice. Either I have you and your son both killed, or you have to hit the middle of an apple with your bow and arrow at 50 paces. I pick the apple, said William Tell. Ah, ha, 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 but you see, the apple will be atop your son's head, declared Gessler with glee. The film strip showed a close-up of Gessler. He was dancing with a big evil joy smile. So they had William Tell's son stand in front of a tree in the square and all the people gathered around. And I might add, Gessler's hat was on the pole right there in the background. No one was bound to it. So technically they all should have been killed. But William Tell took two arrows and put one on his bow and he took aim and he fired right through the center of the apple. Oh, you truly are a mighty marksman, William Tell, announced Burgermeister Gessler. But you need not have taken two arrows. I would only given you the one chance. The second arrow, said William Tell, was to go through your heart if my first arrow had harmed my son. Sputter, fume, rage, said Gessler. And since he had promised he would not kill William Tell, he sentenced him to life in prison on the island across the lake. So they all got in a big boat, and while they were sailing to Prison Island, a huge storm arose, and all the soldiers were small and weak, too small to steer the boat. Only William Tell was big and strong enough. So they freed him, and he steered the boat to shore, and then he shot Gessler through the heart with his second arrow, which I guess they let him keep the whole time, just like he said he would. The second-to-last film strip panel showed Gessler lying on the ground with an arrow sticking up out of his chest. His visible eye was a little X. And the last panel showed William Tell and his son hugging happily with all the free from having to bow to a hat Swiss country folk cheering all around them. During the entire recorded narration, on a loop in the background, Rossini's William Tell Overture was playing. Only it was broken up to make room for the beeps that signify the next frame. So it went which was somewhat maddening. We like the story though. It was way more violence than we usually got in music class. And we hadn't had to do any work. Our music teacher clicked on the overhead light. It looks like we have some time left, she said. So let's all learn to play the first part of that song on the Glockenspiegel. Please come take them from the box. One per set of two partners, please. God damn it. The sound of 30 children banging out da 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 dump da da dump da da dump 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 on 15 metal xylophones at different times on different keys filled the room and it was amidst this noise that Dan and Dave partnered up together of course concocted their plan 
In the last few minutes before the recess bell, the details of the plan made their urgently whispered way around the entire room. Dan and Dave were going to draw a bullseye uh, as a target on a piece of paper. Then, out on the playground, they were going to grab Joey Brenneman, their nemesis and favorite mark from the other second grade classroom. They were going to make him hold the target above his head, and then they would aim for the bullseye. Neither of them had bows or arrows, obviously. But they did both have nature's own weapon and ammunition, the kind all boys had, the kind which could also be used to write one's name in the snow. Bullseye urination at 50 paces. Right down the pipe, right down the pipe. It looked like whatever shirt Joey Brenneman had worn that day was going to be the unlucky color. But when recess came, it turned out that God or fate or the dancing wood nymphs of Greek mythology had smiled upon young Joey Brenneman. He's homesick, his classmates informed Dan and Dave. The brothers were flummoxed. They had been totally gung-ho on the idea, and they also had a crowd of people around them who were expecting a show. Everyone lingered around waiting, but not too close, on the chance that a new target holder would be selected from this group. To our great relief, Dan and Dave decided to follow William Tell's example and keep it in the family. By virtue of the fact that Dan was three months older, it was decided that Dave would hold up the target, taking one for the team and sacrificing himself in the name of sports entertainment. We all went over to the garbage can wall, down the steps from the blacktop over behind the gym. Dave stood with his back to the bricks and held the bullseye. Drawn with black felt marker on spiral notebook paper, bravely just above his head. Half-brother Dan stood nose to nose with him, didn't about face, and walked back 50 steps. 50 steps turned out to be a whole lot farther than anyone had thought, so the boys amended the rules to 10 steps and then changed it again to five giant steps. The brothers faced each other. Dave clenched his eyes shut. Dan put his hand to his fly, like a gunslinger in the Old West. All the girls screamed at once and turned away and hid their eyes. Wait, 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 shouted Dave. Everybody turned back. I'm not going to hold this over my head, man, announced Dave. I'm going to hold it off to the side, like this. No one put up any protest, not even Dan. I think we were all relieved. Dan assumed the position again. Half the girls turned and screamed again. The other half kept their hands over their eyes and peeked through their fingers at the clean paper target flickering slightly in the breeze, held like a bullfighter's cape. The tension was unbearable. Muttered one boy under his breath, and it struck us all as so perfectly appropriate we all simultaneously, like a movie, joined in for the next bar. William Dantel steadied his aim and let his arrow fly from his fly. Like the golden path of the chariot of the sun, it. Fat Huge! Fat Huge! Fat Huge is coming! hissed a kid at the back of the crowd, who had been keeping lookout, signifying the approach of our mammoth playground monitor, who had the misfortune of being named Mrs. Pat Hughes. Everyone looked and panicked and freaked out and then tried to act normal. And later, Dan insisted that Dave moved, and Dave insisted that Dan moved, but the end result was just split seconds before Fat Huge burst on the scene with her trademark, What the hell are you kids up to over here? Dan's yellow arrow stream missed the target completely, but totally saturated the center front of Dave's tanned corduroys. What the hell are you kids up to over here? demanded Fat Huge. No one said a word. We weren't really even sure ourselves. 
I said, said Fat Huge, what are you kids up to? Dave peed his pants, Mrs. Hughes, explained Dan, helpfully pointing to the evidence. I did not fart knocker, butt brain, booker, butt, butt knocker, shrieked Dave. Fat Hughes observed Dave and her expression changed to gentle pity, which was more than Dave could stand. He stood still and furious, wanting to rat on Dan, but somehow declaring, no, I didn't. I let Dan pee on. I, I let, <clears throat> no, I didn't. I let Dan pee on me. Didn't seem any better. So he did the only thing he could do, which was to scream ah, ah, and dive on William Tell the betrayer with a flying leap and punch him over and over in the head and chest. Oh, what the Christ, shouted Fat Huge and blew her whistle over and over, which sent the backup teachers running as Fat Huge pried the boys apart and held them each by the scruff of the collar with her massive hands and marched them to the office. From then on, the power dynamics shifted just slightly in our classroom. We still gave Dan and Dave a wide berth. We still avoided deliberately provoking them, but you might say we didn't bow to their hat anymore. You don't worry so much about pissing someone off, I guess, when you've already seen them publicly pissed on.